behind that's in the bulletin. You're going to want to have your phone, and some of you have a Bible separate from your phone, but I'm going to ask you to have a phone out as well as your Bible and open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now, the reason I want your phone out, all right, if y'all could just do the first build, just press the space bar and get us to that first build back there. There we go. Oops. Almost too fast. All right, let's go back one. There we go. All right. I've got my phone number up there. That's my text message number. Uh, You guys sent me several things last week and you turned in a bunch of others on ways you intend to be involved going forward. But this morning I want to ask you to think for a minute about a song that has sustained you during difficult times. Now for a lot of us that's a church song. It may be a song that was sung when someone we loved uh, was memorialized at a funeral. Or it may be a song that spoke to us through a really difficult time. But I want you to just text me the names of those songs because we're going to share them in just a moment. Because it's not just my experience that's here. In fact, one of the things I try to remind folks is there's only an audience of one when we come to church. You realize that, right? You're not the audience. And we're mistaken when we talk about the church as an audience. God's the only audience of what we do in here, and we're all participants. So I want to share your experience as well as my own. What's a song that has sustained you? Now let me share with you a couple of reasons that this is important from my perspective, but I want you to own the ones from yours. I went through a really, really difficult time, and I've told you this. And during that time... I got through the day listening to one song over and over and over again for three months. The song is by the the Christian group Delirious. Every little thing is going to be all right. And I'd listen to that song five or six times a day because I would not let doubt and bitterness and brokenness snuff out my hope. Before that, and I shared some of this the last couple of weeks, my father died when I was 25 years old. He did everything to live to see his first grandchild born. That was my son. But when Zach was born, he had a blowout fracture of his left eye orbital. And we weren't sure when my dad died if my son would be brain damaged or blind. And so I was a preacher with a broken heart and an angry spirit because my dad fought tooth and toenail to live a, another year and a half to see his first grandchild. So when we had the funeral service, there were three songs that we sang at the end of the service. We walked out on the third one. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand... And come ye that love the Lord, we're marching to Zion, as we better know it. And when peace like a river, 
When we had that funeral in Graveside, I went back a few days later and I preached Elgin, Texas. Warren Richburg was singing that Sunday. He led the singing that Sunday. And the three songs before my sermon were those same exact three songs in the same exact order. He didn't know, and I couldn't talk. Songs are powerful. They speak to something deep inside us, and they can sustain us. When our head can't get its gray matter wrapped around the issues of faith and belief, and our hearts are broken, songs well up from within us, and they lead us to a place that thought and emotion can't get us. Because they're connected. They're connected to a community of believers that sustains us. It's connected to the God who we praise. It's connected to the Scripture and the promises of faith. It's connected to the experiences of others. This song has sustained them. Maybe I can just hang on long enough for it to sustain me. What song has sustained you? Songs are powerful, and we know they're powerful because we've seen them in Scripture. We have a songbook of faith. It's the Psalms. And while the Psalms, many of them were written by David about personal experience, you realize the Holy Spirit gave us these songs to be our songs. Israel sang them. They were a part of their faith language. It reflected who they were. Songs are powerful. That's why when Paul received the call to Macedonia to come and help them, and when he was seeking to share Jesus with them, he was thrown in jail. And when he was in the heart of the jail with Silas, he and Silas sang and prayed, and the jail was thrown open by an earthquake. There was not a single person in Macedonia, Thessalonica, in Philippi, that would not have known that story because the Philippian jailer and his household were a part of that church. They knew that story. They knew how important songs were. Don't you wish you knew what songs he sang? Well, I think I know one of them, and we're going to read it in just a minute. Songs are powerful. Whether you realize it or not, the Jesus that we remembered in communion sang on the cross. And other people go, Jesus wouldn't have sung on the cross. Not when he was before that mob, not when he faced the jeers of others. But, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a cry from Psalm 22. It's the first verse of that song. Very common practice among the rabbis would be to say the first verse of a psalm to stand for the whole psalm. But because Jesus said this, we created a false theology. Never found in Scripture, we've given all sorts of emotional testimonies to it that Jesus was bearing the sins of the world and God couldn't have anything to do with sin. And so he turned his back on Jesus and he separated himself and we built all that. And you know, Scripture never says that. It never says that. In fact, if you read the whole song, 
Jesus is saying, I feel abandoned, God, but I put my faith in you. And this is how the psalm ends. For God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Jesus' cry of desperation on the cross actually becomes a, a, a turning from abandonment to this sense of hope and confidence and deliverance. I have some friends that I deeply love and admire. So I, I just can't believe that's what was on Jesus' mind. And I ask him, have you looked at the Negro spirituals, a part of our African-American heritage of faith that's made its way into some of our songbooks that sustain a whole group of people under times of difficulty, desperation, persecution, abused, and affliction? And in the worst of their horrors, what did they do? They sang these songs of faith that sustained them through the darkest of nights. It's what the Christians did. You go see scribblings beneath the Colosseum and the catacombs in Rome. And their etchings of scriptures and songs. Songs are powerful. Now, I don't know if any of you have uh, shared with me your songs. The Revelation song, Heaven Came Down, When Peace Like a River, Mary Did You Know, I Come to the Garden Alone, I'll Fly Away, I Will Carry My Cross, Where No One Stands Alone, Amazing Grace, Unforgettable, The Lord Is My Shepherd, Trust in You, Though You Slay Me, and of course it is well with my soul, and they're just coming in, coming in. I'm Letting Go by Francesca Battistelli. Be Born in Me. That's another song by Francesca. I want us to remember that there are times in our souls where we don't have the gumption. And I know that's a heavy-duty theological term. But I know we don't have the gumption to keep going on. But we grab a hold of something of faith that sustains us. That's deeper than words, and it's truer than our confessions of faith. And so, when we come to talking about Macedonian maturity, we need to realize that there is nothing more central to Paul's message to the Thessalonians and to the Philippians than the Jesus song. The Jesus song. And how Paul applies it to the Christians at Philippi. So let's open our Bibles to Philippians 2, if you don't have it open. And I want to thank you for the songs of faith, and we're going to find a way to post these in the hall over the next week or so, so you can see other people's songs of faith, be sustained by them, turn to them, learn them. Philippians is a book of joy. That's what we normally say, because there's so much talk about rejoicing. But I remind folks, you don't have to command people to rejoice if they're happy. The Philippians faced difficult challenges being a people of faith. And on top of that, two women, Eodia and Syntyche, women who had been responsible for leading a bunch of the church to Christ, had gotten crosswise with each other. And their disagreement was threatening the church, so much so that Paul would call them out in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, right there in the middle of church service. 
Because the book of Philippians would have been read in front of all the church. And so he writes all this good stuff, and then he gets to the end of the letter, and he says, okay, yoke fellow, my brother in Christ, notice Yodia and notice Syntyche. And I want you two women to listen to what I'm saying. Have you ever been out, called out in church? I remember in high school. Now, now, remember, when I went to college, I, I told y'all I didn't know much about girls except they smell good and I like to kiss them. Okay, that's, that's the extent of my, I promise you, that's the extent of my knowledge. And my parents still believed kind of in Gestapo tactics, and so I couldn't hold hands with my girlfriend in church. So we were, uh, we were right in front of the split, and we were in church and sitting like this, and we were holding hands like this because I didn't want to give it away with my shoulder. My parents were behind the split a couple of rows. And, you know, we were, I wasn't paying attention to the sermon very well. And, you know, I was thinking more about that sweet little hand in my hand. And, you know, when you're a teenage guy, you do that and your brain short circuits. The next thing I know, the preacher, who is mild-mannered, sweet guy, points, and it looks like he's pointing right at us and says, you teenagers, please behave. I wanted to tell you what happened to Aiken would have been better than what I felt like. You know, when the earth swallowed him and he was consumed by fire, I was ready to have that happen because I knew it was going to be worse when I got home. So when we got in the car to drive home from church, my mom looked back at me car and she goes he wasn't talking to you (laughs) you talk about a Pentecostal moment on the road home that was it okay but when Paul called out Iodia and Syntyche there was no getting around it because these women were threatening to split the church And everybody was arguing over who was right and who had the best theology and who had things nailed down best. And so into the middle of that, Paul writes this message. And the message comes in two parts. The first part is Paul's teaching. The second part is the Jesus song. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, because you have encouragement from being united with Christ and because you have comfort from his love, and because you share in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and because you have tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look just to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Plain, straightforward, in-your-face teaching. I want you to be unified. Now, how are we going to do that? We're going to behave this way. But why is this so important? Well, he says in verse 5, In your relationship with each other, have this mind that you find in Christ Jesus. Being of the same mind is a theme that runs throughout the book of Philippians. 
Again, he's not talking about getting everybody on the same dime theologically so every little single thing lines up. He's going to tell us what he means in this passage. And it's more about behavior and the way we treat each other. Because we can never be right theologically and treat people in ways Jesus wouldn't have treated them. Isn't that right? It doesn't matter how right we may be theologically, if we treat people wrong in the way we present that doctrine or that teaching, we're wrong. And so Paul is saying, this is what I want you to do. Now, what you can't tell exactly, unless your Bible is indented and put in strophes, this is a song. It's a poem. And it's probably, I think, a song that he sang with the Philippian jailer. It's a song that goes back to Judea that was where the whole gospel originated, but had made its way there. It's one of those songs that they sang, kind of like there are 16 versions of Jesus is Lord. But they're all pretty similar, and it spread like wildfire, and we owned it as our own. And you can go in churches all over the world and sing that song in all sorts of languages. It's simple, but it is so powerful. Well, this was one of those songs. Verse 6. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Literally, the language is, you're on the ledge of a window on the 27th floor hanging on by your fingernails. Jesus didn't grasp on to his nature being God. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, a man. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. He put him in the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee in heaven and on earth and in the demonic world. And every tongue confess that Jesus... Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Paul wanted to pull the big theological point to call the Macedonians to a maturity that was beyond doctrine and beyond years and beyond experience, what did he do? He sang their equivalent of Jesus is Lord. A song they knew. A song they would sing again and again and again. And the power of the song is that when you attach your mind and your heart to that song, what happens? Every time you sing it, your heart is grabbed and taken to that spot. Your mind is transported to that moment. Five or six years after my father's death, uh, Ron Beasley and I, uh, met each other in the Coliseum at ACU and went into uh, a worship at Lectureship or Summit. 
And they began to sing, When Peace Like a River. And I looked over at him, and he was sobbing. And of course, I didn't look at anybody because I was crying too. And he just goes, I've never been able to sing that song since your daddy's funeral. And so they needed a mop for the place that the two of us sat when we finished that song. You've been there. Song just overwhelms you. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to do with these Christians to teach them this principle of maturity. Every time the song is sung, I want to remind you of what is of first importance. Just below believing that Jesus died and buried and was raised is this principle that he is our hero. He is our model. He is our king. He is the one we seek to emulate. He's the one that we're to have a mind like. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or if you can't read. There's a place for you in God's kingdom because you can look at Jesus, the Jesus that we celebrate in the supper and say, that's who I want to be like, and I understand what he did. And so he puts that song right in the middle of Christian mature, or in the middle of Christian worship and Christian life, and what he does is he turns the sense of maturity upside down. He changes the polarity of everything. Notice three things he does. Number one, he says, we give to serve. We give to serve. That's the first few verses. What did Jesus do? He gave. What did he gave? give? He gave everything. In fact, when we give, we're most like God. One of my favorite stories I ever heard Chuck Swindoll tell is a story that comes from the end of World War II. Things were beginning to wind down. But all throughout London, there were these little orphan kids. And they were hungry, and they were starving. And there was an American GI that went into a little bakery. And it was a cold, damp morning like you get in London. You got stuff blown to bits all around, but this little bakery had made it through, and this GI was going in to get him some donuts. Because this was one of the few places that made American donuts in London. And he wanted a donut. He didn't want a scone and he didn't want a biscuit. He wanted a donut. And he, goes, he got, starts to go in and there's this little kid in rags and tattered clothes. And he's trying to rub away the steam from the window. But if you know anything about that you know the warmth was on the inside, so the moisture was on the inside, and the little kid couldn't get the moisture away. He was trying to look in, and he could smell what was going on. So the GI went in and bought a dozen donuts, got his baker's dozen, the 13th one, and he took it out of the bag, and he starts to walk out the door, and he looks over at the young boy, and he holds his one donut and gives the little boy the dozen. Any of you serving World War II, you know you didn't have a lot of pocket change. (laughs) That's quite a gift. And he looks at that GI and he says, Thank you, mister. Are you kind of like God? When we give, we're most like God. That's what Jesus did. He gave up his rights he gave up heaven he gave up security 
He gave up protection. He gave up 10,000 angels. He gave up his disciples. He gave up the right hand of the Father. He gave up the angels surrounding his throne. He gave up the crowds in heaven shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He gave up all that and he became human. But he didn't just give up and become human. He lost everything. And he did it to seek and to serve and to save you and me. He did it for us. And so Paul says, if you want to be great, listen to the song you sing. We give to serve. So it's not surprising that a few years later when Paul's trying to talk to the folks in Corinth about the need to provide an offering for the church in Jerusalem where they were impoverished. He could point to this song and the power of this Jesus hymn and the life of the Macedonian churches and say, out of their great poverty welled up great generosity. This is 2 Corinthians 8. And these Macedonians didn't do as we thought. But their giving came from this. They gave themselves first to God and then to us, his leaders. They gave themselves first to God and then to his leaders and then outpoured this rich generosity. We sometimes disconnect giving, forgiving, and giving up And forget they're all part of the same heart. It's a heart of generosity. There have been many, many things that I have been blessed at being a partner with you guys during this search. It's been a great blessing to me. This is a precious group of people. And it's hard for me. And when I get down to the end and I'm winding up, I get pretty attached to people. And then I have to go someplace else and start all, all over again. It's hard. But of all the many good things, there's one thing that concerns me, and I'm just going to speak straight to it. If you're a guest, understand this is not for you. But I've been disappointed in the congregational giving during the interim. Because often we use giving as a way to say, I'm going to wait and see what happens. I'm not going to give up of myself to this church until I'm sure I like who they're going to get as their preacher. And that's not the way it works. You don't put yourself under the sole protection of elders and then say, I'm going to withhold my money. Even worse, you don't say, I'm living for Jesus and not be generous. One of the hard things for me is I come and I sit at the front and everybody sees me not put stuff in the plate except for special stuff and kids stuff. And I want you to know we, my wife and I, tithe. We don't think that's optional. I know some of our brethren have tried to teach it's not optional, but Jesus said we're supposed to do it. So I believe it's important. But you're not going to see me do it here, but I'm going to call on you because this is your church family. And either you're in or you're not. And we need you in because pretty soon we're going to ask somebody to give up their home and rip their 
family away from folks they know and a church that they've been successful in leading. And we're going to ask them to move here and give up everything to partner with you. So how can we ask them to be all in if we're not, if you're not? So Macedonian maturity, Paul's going to say, give yourself to God. That's what Jesus did. He gave up everything to give us everything. And the Macedonians, they got that message. They began to sing that song, Jesus is Lord. And all of a sudden, they realized Jesus is Lord of my heart. He's Lord of how I treat others. And he's Lord of what I do with my stuff. Well, enough for that. That's a little too convicting, so we'll move on to the second one, which is even more convicting. You look down a little bit. He gave up all this and humbled himself and became human, anthropos. He was one of us, skin, flesh, blood, emotions. And being found in appearance as a human being, he became obedient. Obedient even to death. We're called to obey God no matter the cost. I know obedience is not a hip term these days. You don't get everybody excited to go sing the old song, Trust and Obey. In fact, I hadn't heard it in a long time. It's not a peppy song. It's counterintuitive. <laughs> but if God is God, what's our response? Worship. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's worship about? Well, it's not just about what we sing and pray. It's how we live. How we obey. We obey God no matter the cost. No matter the cost. I don't know if you saw the story this morning, but there's a group of Coptic believers in Jesus in Egypt, and their worship service was live. And all of a sudden, there's this noise, and it went blank. In one of the most hostile places in the world, they gave their lives trying to obey God no matter the cost. We got people that believe in Jesus all over the world facing that decision every day. The question is, will we do it in a place that it's a lot easier? Because it may get tougher before we go see him. Number three, we trust God to do what is best in the time that is best. Therefore, God highly exalted him, gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Jesus deserved that before he came to earth, didn't he? Isn't that right? He's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus deserved the name above every name before that. But from our perspective, he deserves it because he proved it. He suffered. He was abandoned by his friends. He was betrayed by a disciple. He was disowned by his leader. They all forsook him and fled in the garden. He was stripped naked. He didn't have a loincloth. I hate to disrupt anybody's imagination, but they crucified people without any clothing so that they could defecate and urinate in public on themselves in utter humiliation and shame and degradation. 
He took the curse of the law that said, cursed is anyone hung on a tree. And he did it for us to take away the curse of the law and the demands that our sin be punished. And he did it because he loved us too much to leave us in the mess that he had to face. And to redeem us and give us a new hope and a new life. And when they stuck him in the grave, he went into hell and he defeated the power of Satan in his grip over those that he held in the power of death. And he rose from the dead on the third day and he poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the same Spirit that enters the life of anyone that comes and shares in that death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. So while he deserved the name above every name before he went through all the mess, How much more does he not deserve the name above every name now? Except now, we say it not just with our brains, but we say it with our hearts and with our song. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this morning, we all face a decision. Is he going to be our Lord? And if he's our Lord, it's real simple. We sing the Jesus song. We sing the Jesus song. And the Jesus song is real simple. I give to serve because he did. I obey no matter the cost because he did that for me. And I know glory waits because he's proved it. And I trust that God will make it true at the right time. So if you need to come back to Jesus or you need to come to Jesus... This is a great moment. We're going to sing a song. And it's our invitation and the Lord's invitation for you to come and receive that grace as we stand and sing.